This episode of Oppo is brought to you in part by HelloFresh, the meal kit delivery service that shops, plans, and delivers step-by-step recipes and pre-measured ingredients so you can cook, eat, and enjoy, even if you're a total idiot in the kitchen. For half off your first box of HelloFresh, go to hellofresh.ca slash oppo50 and enter OPPO50. This episode of Oppo is also brought to you in part by Endy, the 100% Canadian-made mattress. Now, what does it mean to sleep on a Canadian-made mattress? It means going to bed knowing that the mattress you sleep on was ethically made, locally sourced, affordable, and it smells like maple. It doesn't, but you can just imagine that. For 50 bucks off any Endy mattress, go to endy.ca slash oppo and enter the promo code OPPO. From Canada land, this is oppo. <laughs> On this week's show, Jen checks in with the Bozo Volcano that is Alberta, telling us which UCP candidate thinks which minority should burn in hell this week. My goodness, let me tell you, this has been a bad week to not be able to drink anything. And we decide to torture Justin by forcing him to lead the conversation on his favorite topic, SNC. More specifically, the fact that our parliament is now a bit of a fractured mess. Actually, that second thing is my favorite topic to talk about, so joke's on you, Jen. Yeah, of course it is. Of course it is, you giant policy wonk nerd. I'm perfectly aware that most people in the rest of Canada believe that the outcome of the Alberta election is a fait accompli. What is That's that? My classic French? Way of saying it. Are you sure you're from Alberta? <laughs> I'm sure I said it wrong. I mean, does that does that you count? Did, yeah. <laughs> Actually, that, that's very perfectly Albertan saying French wrong. Yeah, well, you know. That's... Apart from the Franco-Albertans, you guys are great. Um, however, there's a couple of reasons why I think people should be paying attention. We mentioned this last week that the Alberta election is a bit of a trial run for what's going to happen in the federal election. And what's becoming very, very clear to me is that the bozo eruptions coming up in this election have a real chance of derailing the UCP's chances for a minority government. I realize people are going to be very skeptical when I say that because it's Alberta. And of course, it's going to vote conservative because Alberta is Alberta and everybody knows everything about Alberta. But I actually think that things are starting to really shift. And they're started to shift on Wednesday night when Jason Kenney gave this amazing interview oh to God. radio talk show host Charles Adler. Basically, it is one of the most damning interviews I've ever heard in my life. Do you see a woman's choice to have an abortion? her reproductive choice, is that a choice to murder a baby? I I could go on here. Mr. Kenny, we could put this to bed immediately if you could only offer a genuine, fulsome apology. I'll I'll move on from San Francisco. Have you ever offered a genuine, remorseful apology for the many people that you and your colleagues hurt with that initiative? Charles, I, I've said that I regret many things I did when I was a young man. That's and that's not one an of them. apology, I Mr. Kenny. I wouldn't Kenny. take the same That's position. not an apology. I I re- I've expressed my regret for positions right. I took. Well, I haven't gotten an apology yet, so I guess I, I've given it three tries, and, and I'll, I'll quit on that. I was in shock, as many people were, when they heard uh, Mark Smith's uh, sermon, the misogynistic crap, the homophobic sewage was shocked. 
Adler, who is like a friend of Jason Kenney, and I think because they had a certain friendship and a rapport, and I say had, was able to go after him on like a peer-to-peer level that I don't think anybody else has ever really managed to accomplish. I mean, I've interviewed Kenny a couple of times, and I've never really managed to maneuver in this way. But It's a remarkable interview. You know, he asked Kenny three times to apologize for like the activism that he took part in in the 1980s, which kept gay partners apart during the height of the AIDS crisis. And these were partners who were dying in hospitals at the time, you know, and three times he went after them and, and three times Kenny was like, well, you know, I regret many things that I did as a young man. I was like, well, that's not an apology, dude. You know, Jason Kenny went hardcore on the fact that, you know, he's running the most diverse slate of candidates of any political party in the country. But then when challenged on how many gay candidates he had, he kind of admitted, well, none. Yeah, there's none. There are just a whole bunch of incredibly odd telling answers. And if you've got half an hour to kill, you really should listen to it because it's riveting radio. But there's just answers that, that you listen to it and you're just like, what? Let me put a plug in this for this interview because I think, you know, a lot of people coming into it or hearing about it would go, okay, yeah, it's a radio host doing his radio host thing. But I don't think people give him enough credit because Charles Adler is like one of the most old school radio hosts in this country. Yeah. And he is so good at what he does. It sounds like when you when you listen to it, it kind of sounds a bit pompous. It sounds a bit kind of ad hoc, like he's just throwing stuff out. But if you actually sit back and look at this interview, it is the most well-constructed takedown of a candidate I think I've seen it in a long time. You know, it, it starts friendly. He goes into, you know, one subject just when it gets really tiresome. He moves on to the next one. He moves on to the next one. And we don't realize along the way he's building to this big culmination that kind of wraps up everything he'd done over the course of the half hour into this just absolute fuck you of a finale where it's like, you know, okay, do you think that maybe your past is contributing to the absolute shit show of a you know a murder of nut job candidates that are following you around do you not recognize that and it's oh it's just brilliant it's, it's absolutely it's, brilliant. It, like you, you actually just have to listen to it you've got to listen to the whole interview and i think that what's what's amazing about this too is like i think honestly only charles adler could have done that interview and have it be as effective as it was yeah Right. Because a couple of reasons. One, you can't just say, I know a lot of people who are on the far right say that Charles Adler is now like a left wing, whatever. I, you know, I'm not going to get into that. But like you can't, normal people can't dismiss Charles Adler, some kind of far left progressive communist with an axe to grind against Jason Kenney. I mean, these guys are by their own admission friends. You know, like, yeah. like it's very, but it's very clear that this is an issue. LGBTQ issues are very important to Charles Adler, and it's an issue that he's genuinely very passionate about. So, you know, it gets him right in the heart. It's very emotional to listen to. It's very painful to listen to. Ironically, I think that that interview prepped Kenny for the debate, which came on Thursday. Because he had that interview and it went so badly, I suspect that he managed to avoid all of those same pitfalls in the debate on Thursday. And as a result, the debate was a bit of a waste. Like, it, like, that debate was useless. Don't bother listening to it. It's not going to change anything's yeah, mind. Yeah, it's really pretty meh. But the Adler interview, I think, is for the UCP a real cancer because not only is it so damning, but it's being passed around and continuing to be passed around. You know, Global offered a transcription of it. I think it's going to be another week before the UCP really sees the full impact of that interview. And I think it raises real, real solid questions about what Kenny's real beliefs on LGBTQ issues really are. And I don't think that the majority of Albertans are with him on this one. Yeah, and I I mean, and fundamentally, it's just, it's contributing to a narrative. I mean, you know, if you had to talk about the NDP's narrative over the course of the campaign, it's pretty steady as she goes. If you really hated the NDP going into the election, you really hate them the same amount. If you weren't sold on them, you're a little tired, you want change, 
you you might actually be coming around back to the NDP, and if you love them, you love them. Or you might be, have been so grossed out by what you've seen from the UCP that you're going to go do a protest vote like the Alberta Party, which oh, starts yeah. to head us down the path of minority government territory. Mm. That would be devastating for Kenny. I think that it would be a real wake-up call for the UCP. And I think that it's a sort of response I would expect from a lot of moderate conservative Albertans. Yeah. If you've been following the polls, there actually hasn't been many out there. Main Street is doing some daily polling numbers. Some Ecos is is doing some polling for a labor union. And the polling is is a little spotty, and and it's you know it's hard to say conclusively what's happening here. But some of the polls are showing a weakening UCP vote and a strengthening NDP vote. So I think this may end up getting you know closer than a lot of people expect. But of course, we did a show last time on the Alberta election and, and covered most of this off. But you know, one thing that you kind of didn't talk about last time, Jen, is the preponderance of bozo eruptions that are happening because back then it was a, it was a you know a scattershot few now there's yeah. a bunch so now i think definitely we've moved to the point where that narrative has cemented right i mean i know this is a difficult thing for people to necessarily get but like there are storylines during elections that you know there's one narrative over here one narrative over here one narrative over here and over the course of, of an election what you start to see is like particular narratives cement that leads people to form what they call their ballot question, which is the question that they're going to have going into their head when they mark on their ballot. So if, if the question that you have going in when you mark your ballot is who's going to be better for the Alberta economy, and that is your overwhelming concern, then you are more likely to vote UCP. No question. If the ballot question you have going in on this case is, you know, can I trust Jason Kenney? You're probably not voting for Jason Kenney because I can tell you his unfavorables are real high. You know, there's a lot of people who have questions about him. And, and the thing that I've noticed just being kind of in, a, in that sort of center, center right space in Alberta is I'm overwhelmed by how many really touching, thoughtful emails and responses. You're never really going to get a journalist talking about all the touching, thoughtful email responses they get very often. But I've been overwhelmed by how many I've gotten from real conservatives. Like we're talking like ranchers and Nanton type people, staunch conservatives, believing conservatives, sending me these very, very thoughtful, well-written pieces about their concerns about where this party is going and where it's headed. So I don't think that the Bozo eruption wing represents a substantive majority, even of conservative Albertans. And I think a lot of people are put off by it, more people than you think. Now, what will override that? If overwhelming concerns about the economy override all that, if anger toward Ottawa overrides all that, yeah, we will see the UCP win. But I don't think that you can read as much into that UCP win as you might imagine. Right. But, you know, we've actually seen a, a tactic shift from Jason Kenney. You know, at first he seemed so terrified of being led down the lake of fire path that he fired anyone who could conceivably be a problem for him. He's not firing all of his bozos anymore. No. And that that's really important to note. And I think that's actually why this narrative cemented. He was pretty ruthless about cutting out candidates and nominees who had any whiff of, of wrongdoing about them. And what changed is, of course, the deadline passed by which they could exchange one person on the ballot for another. So like the latest bozo eruption from Mark Smith, this is where a memo that he wrote as the Wild Roses education critic came out. It's just this bizarre rambling memo about how he thinks that, you know, Christian schools should be able to fire gay teachers. I mean, it's just it, it's almost incoherent. And he's authored some other stuff that's come out since then. Of course, he you know famously said that, you know, women who choose to have an abortion do so with love. Or, and this is one that Charles Adler really goes down. And, one of his ugh. sermons came out. and It was Ugh. really just creepy and disturbing. It's it sort of incidentally conflated homosexuality with pedophilia. Like it's just it's all the classic hits here. What was different about this is that. Jason Kenney stood behind the guy, wouldn't fire him. And of course, it's too late to fire him because if he drops out of the race now, they can't replace him with another UCP candidate, which means they lose Drayton. 
And if they lose Drayton, well, that's one less seat. And if they think that they're on the verge of a minority government, they're not going to risk the seat. So, I mean, that's that's what's changed here. And that's why people have gone like, wait a minute, buddy. The election is painfully soon. April 16th. Do you want to make a prediction, Chad? No, I think it's too soon to be making a prediction because if I've learned anything in Alberta politics, it's that generally people don't really make up their mind until about 48 hours before the election. So I don't think that I'm going to be putting forward any bets publicly. Well, you can be a pansy all you want, Jen. (laughs) I made a bet a long time ago based on nothing other than not totally believing that Jason Kenney can deliver on this, that Rachel Notley will will eke by with a victory. And I didn't say minority or majority, but I I still think Rachel Notley will be premier the day after. And I've made my bet. And if I'm uh, wrong yet again, feel free to make fun of me. We don't call you the Oracle for nothing, Justin. This episode of Oppo is brought to you in part by Endy, the 100% Canadian-made mattress. Buying a Canadian mattress is cool. It makes you look cool. It gives you that sort of raw, cool appeal that you see in all those people you idolize. But more than that, it also gives you the best possible sleep. It is scientifically proven that cool people sleep better, and they're cool because they slept better. Unlike traditional memory foam mattresses, ND foam is not temperature sensitive, like most cool people. This means you can expect a consistent foam firmness all year round through every Canadian season, or both Canadian seasons. For 50 bucks off any ND mattress, go to ND.ca slash oppo and enter the promo code oppo. Silence! Silence! Jen Gerson, you are called before the Liberal Caucus today on the following charges. I imagine they'll be plentiful. Speaking to the media with an express consent from the PMO. Recording a conversation that makes the government look bad. Showing a lack of caucus unity and being difficult in such a way that has nothing to do with you being a woman. How do you plead? Guilty, except for the last part. My difficulty is absolutely and inextricably linked to the fact that I'm a woman. Either way, we're going to go ahead and just throw you in this lake anyway. Thank you very much, Sunny Ways. Awesome. It's been a fantastic two weeks for the Liberal Caucus. It's been brilliant for them, eh? <laughs> it's been such a fucking mess. Uh, Jen, just when you think the SNC-Lavalin scandal is coming down, the Prime Minister decides to uh, basically recreate uh, the Purge movies, but in his caucus. Fantastic. And I just can't imagine any better way that this is going to go over for his quote-unquote brand. Like, there's nothing that says you support feminism, women, and First Nations inclusion, like having your caucus boot out your highest profile First Nations former cabinet minister and Jay Philpott, who until recently was considered a superstar. Yeah, I mean, this is an absolute shit show. I mean, if you didn't see the news, I, I know you obviously did, but the prime minister decided to abruptly fire Jane Philpott and Jody Wilson-Raybould just a couple of minutes before uh, there was a scheduled vote inside caucus to do exactly that. Actually, I mean, to request that both women resign, which they didn't seem to have any intention of doing. That didn't end up happening. Justin Trudeau comes out, meets with both women, tells them, you're out, baby, and then goes and gives a speech to his caucus where he explains that the undesirables have been purged from the ranks. And if you follow this speech closely, uh, you know, the prime minister explained that he had to fire Jody Wilson-Raybould because she was surreptitiously recording conversations. And you can't do that because it erodes trust. And, you know, never mind what they were talking about on the phone call. Just the fact that you recorded it is crime enough and she gots to go. And also Jane Philpott's bad, too. Yeah, because, I mean, they're friends because. <laughs> 
because they went to the bathroom together and did their lipstick, I guess. That's how that works. At this point, they were clearly looking for any excuse, right? Like any excuse to kick these women out. I mean, there's if it weren't for the recording, it would have been trust. It would have been whatever. I'm surprised the prime minister didn't come out and was just like, we found conservative reading material in her desk. (laughs) She's been indoctrinated by the enemy. She's a counter-revolutionary and she got to go. We checked her uh, liberal assigned (laughs) computer and found that she downloaded porn once. Like... That's the level of stuff here. I mean, one of the great quotes coming from that Trudeau tweet, which he justified kicking them out, is where he says, quote, diversity only works when there's trust. Justin, (laughs) could you please explain to me what that means exactly, that we can only have people of color and women in our caucus as long as we, quote unquote, (laughs) trust them not to, like, challenge us in any meaningful way? Because that's kind of how I read that. I I mean, I don't know what the hell it means. I mean, I think like half the prime minister's tweets, it's a mindless baffle cab. I will say that there's one point here that I do want to kind of dig into a little bit, because I've seen a lot of people come out kind of, you know, aggressively suggesting that firing both women is in and of itself sexist, that it is proof of sexism and discrimination against Indigenous people. On the flip side, I've seen a a lot of reasonable people bulk at that so aggressively to say, you know, if they were men, they would have been fired too. And, you know, I think that dichotomy totally misses the point. And I mean, it's the exact point the prime minister tried to make when he appointed his cabinet. You know, this isn't about requiring a number of women in a room. This isn't about dictating quotas or, or you know, calling other people racist because they don't believe in that same sort of quota system or the same sort of gender parity system. What it actually matters is that you want a government and a governance structure where there is a bunch of both men and women and people of color and non-people of color sitting around the table who can speak openly and engage without worrying too much whether or not they're going to be heard differently or dismissed. And firing no, no, the Justin. lead indigenous. They have a moral obligation to agree with what the white man at the head of the table says. That's kind of. <laughs> That's yeah. the true meaning of diversity. You get to come to the table and you get to have an opinion just so long as that opinion is the same thing as what your middle-aged white male boss thinks. I will say I do genuinely believe that both of these ministers would have been fired if they were white men. But I also believe that if you fire white men, it tends to have a lesser impact than if you fire prominent women, especially indigenous women, because those people have not been around the table as long. I mean, it does have consequences. You don't get to have your cake and eat it, too. You don't get to enjoy all of the praise of bringing in this diverse gender parity cabinet and then somehow not also be disproportionately penalized exactly. when you boot two women out. Like, like you yeah. can't have both of those things operate simultaneously. Yeah, I mean, I exactly would say right. this is that I don't think that it's sexist to kick two women out of your cabinet. That's not the point. That's not the argument we're trying to make here. You know, I think ultimately this doesn't so much come down to a question of feminism, but it comes down to the question of, wait for it, independence. I will say, you know, the prime minister got absolutely mocked and made fun of for his whole spiel about gender-based analysis. You know, if you send a bunch of construction workers into a small town, you have to take into account the impact that that might have because they're predominantly male. That town probably isn't or isn't probably just gender balanced. I think you're going to have to do the same thing for him firing two women. You know, is it Mm. in and of itself sexist? No, but there's a gender analysis to be done there that actually has an impact. And the prime minister, when he got called on that, decided to literally pit women against each other and say, you know, it's hard to choose between Christina Freeland and Jody Wilson-Raybould. Hey, guess what? No one's asking you to pick. It's so hard for him to choose between this one woman who's parroted every line that he's said (laughs) in public and, like, sacrificed her own credibility to salvage his. And, like, the women who are actually challenged me in a meaningful way. It's so difficult. 
How can you be anyone be asked to choose between those two women, Justin? And of course, you know, it's not okay to have cabinet ministers going out and trying to knife you in the back. I mean, at a certain point, you can't have, you know, your treasury board president come out and say, oh, yeah, our government really fucked this up. Which is the reason why Jane Philpott resigned. That's literally why she said she yes, resigned. She said, that's, and, and that is with the appropriate action. Because, I mean, if you are in cabinet and you feel like you cannot, in good conscience, continue to support the motions of your cabinet, then you have an obligation to resign. And that right. is exactly what she was supposed to do. So good honor for it. She sacrificed her future in the Liberal Party. Right. But there is not that same demand of caucus unity. I've heard this phrase so many times over the last couple of weeks. Caucus unity. We need to have caucus solidarity. Caucus unity. That is a very Canadian concept. Like That mentality does not exist in the same way in most other modern democracies. We demand the unity of our political parties in the House of Commons to a degree that is absolutely bizarre. I mean, you I actually did I've been doing a bunch of research on this in the last week. There is few other examples in you know, of the major economies, of the major democracies, of parliaments being this lockstep. Really the only similarities you can see are in New Zealand and Australia. Of course, Australia also gives caucuses a lot of more power. Individuals MPs in caucus have a lot more power than ours do. And in New Zealand, they have a mixed member system that makes things a little more complicated. I think that you're absolutely correct. I mean, what we have evolved, I think, in the last hundred years in, in Canada is a weird hybrid system. It's not quite the Westminster parliamentary system anymore. Because under the Westminster parliamentary system, what you have is you have individual MPs are ultimately responsible to their constituents. And leaders are actually responsible to their caucuses. So right. that if your caucus basically says, nah, fuck y'all, you're out, Prime Minister, he's gone. But what we've actually created with our weird hybrid system is a total inversion of that. Now MPs are beholden to their parties and centralized power in the party. So in order to gain any kind of access to political power in our system today, you need to be beholden to a highly centralized, highly secretive, not terribly transparent private club called a political party. And that is creating all kinds of weird ramifications. And for me, what the Jody Wilson-Raybould and the Jane Philpott expulsion actually demonstrated was the degree to which that new system has become normalized and cemented in yeah. the collective popular consciousness. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, you know, in most parties in this country of the big parties, you really don't have a mechanism to oust your leader or to make substantive changes in how your party operates if it doesn't come from the top down. If you're a member of the NDP, you have the ability every two years to vote in a um, a leadership review. Do I want my leader to stay on? Do I want him gone? And, you know, famously, that's how Tom Mulcair fell. I mean, he centralized power in that party to an unreasonable degree. And that's one of the reasons he was kicked out for it. And, you know, under and now they're regretting that enormously. <laughs> I mean, if you're in the conservative party, the only time you have that ability is after they lose an election. Otherwise, you, members and MPs do not have the ability to oust the leader. Uh, of course, Michael Chong's Reform Act tried to amend that. Ultimately, the conservative party didn't adopt all of those processes. It's super, it's super right. But the other thing I would also say is like, this isn't just the liberal party. This evolution has been going on for, I would say, about 100 years. Let me just say, though, because, you know, at least those other two parties have mechanisms where yeah. if nobody else, at least the members of the party have the ability to oust a leader, which is ultimately one of the most impactful things you can do in a party. Mm -hmm. In the Liberal Party, there's just no mechanism to get rid of a leader, not by the membership and not by the caucus. Well, technically that's true and technically that's not true, because according to sort of unwritten precedent, if the Liberal caucus were to say to Justin Trudeau tomorrow, we've lost confidence in you and we are not going to vote with you on a confidence measure, he's out. 
There's literally no way that he can continue to lead parliament. The problem is that that no longer happens and people no longer treat that as an option. And I think that the reason why that is goes back to the fact that we no longer choose leaders the way we used to, which means that ultimately the leader is now responsible to the people who voted for him and not the caucus he's expected to lead. And it's fundamentally altered the whole dynamic of power within parliament. Yeah. And of course, if you're Trudeau, you're not even answerable to your to your membership because, again, they have no ability to oust you. And and in that uh, system, you know, everyone rallies around dear leader. I mean, this is kind of how it works. You have a fiefdom. You maintain kind of all executive authority over your own party and your own caucus. So for anyone to come out against you would just be foolhardy. And that's exactly what you saw with Jane Philpott and Jody Wilson-Raybould. And it's exactly actually you can actually see in the House of Commons the impact this has had. This is one of the most uh, diverse, fractured House of Commons we've seen in in, in many decades, beyond just having kind of the big caucuses, we now have um, these little splits and a big, you know, rump of independence. You have, of course, your Green member who's elected. You have your CCF member who is kicked out of the NDP. You have your People's Party MP who is kind of resigned, but also kind of kicked out. I mean, that was kind of a, a chicken and the egg sort of thing. And you have seven independents and three vacant seats. And the one big commonality with a lot of those independents and the vacant seats is that most of them are liberals. And uh, they either left or were fired in ways that probably should raise some eyebrows. But here's actually where the, the real avenue for reform could come into play. Because if it becomes more normal to have people from smaller parties or or independent MPs sit in parliament, and that rump starts to get larger and larger and larger in reaction to the extraordinary centralization of power in parties, then what you have is that you have a growing caucus of people who are in power and empowered and not beholden to the traditional party structure. Uh, sort of. But here's actually the problem with that is that independents in our system right now actually have very few powers. They have less powers than they have in the past. Currently, it's an, it's incredibly hard, thanks to some changes over the last handful of years, to amend legislation at report stage from the House of Commons. You know, We used to have these marathon votes where independent and small caucuses would get up and try to amend legislation that they thought was unconstitutional or problematic, and they would lead these marathon votes in the House of Commons. They've lost a lot of that power. Independents and uh, smaller parties still don't really have a lot of authority to go sit on committees. You know, there's some kind of uh, new precedent being evolved around that. But generally speaking, even if we had, you know, 40 members who came uh, from smaller parties, that is, you know, parties and caucuses that are not recognized by the House, they don't have the same rights and powers as uh, those from major parties. So actually, we, we would see a weaker parliament, a majority government with more power if we had a more fractured and diverse House of Commons, which is actually a really terrifying thing because that's kind of the way things are going. You know, but wait, but unless you get to a tipping point, right? Like there has to be a tipping point at which independents make up enough of the parliament in order to either form a kind of independent party effectively, which would be an artifact, and gain some of the powers that, that a party would have. Or what you would have is, especially in a minority government situation, you would have a, a government that simply couldn't command any power without the support of independence, in which case they have the potential to be enormously powerful, particularly if they make reform one of their top goals. We have 21 members right now who don't sit with one of the three major parties, and they just don't have the uh, authority or ability to amend legislation in many cases, to actually have a say in what goes on a committee, to have any sort of influence or input on the crafting of legislation or the agenda of the House. And I, I realize a lot of that is the reality of a majority government, but they have even less power than, say, the, a conservative or an NDP MP would. I mean, you have Selena Cesar Chavanez, uh, who was, you know, a first-time MP who's quite well-liked, quite capable. She decided she wasn't going to run again. She told the prime minister that, and he responded by saying it would be wrong for her to announce that that week 
uh, because it was the same week that Jody Wilson-Raybould resigned from cabinet and, quote, the optics of having two women of color leaving would be bad. So that fucking sucks. And, you know, the fact that she felt that she had resigned from the party and her caucus to go sit as an independent after that really bums me out. Sunny ways. And, you know, you have Raj Grewal, who... You know, was kicked out of his party after some weird gambling debts surfaced. You know, Hunter Tutu, who had a completely consensual relationship, unfortunately, with the staffer and then her mother, which is weird. We don't have to get into that. But, you know, there, there's an open question about whether or not it's appropriate that the prime minister has kind of unfettered authority to just boot people out when they represent a bad news story for him. And really, there's no mechanism for them to come back unless the prime minister feels like bringing them back inside the fold. And that that's kind of troubling to me. You know, I have four members in the opposition benches who whose ability to contribute meaningfully in the House is entirely decided by the Prime Minister, and all four of whom have not done significantly horrible things. It's not like Darshan Kang, of course, who fondled and groped women uh, while he was elected in office, who also sits as independent. But all to say is that, ah, this sucks. Like, this sucks. And, and Jody Wilson-Raybould and Jane Philpott are just the kind of culmination of how bad this has gotten. Well, we're going to have to bring Michael Chung on our, on our podcast, aren't we? <laughs> I don't want to. No, His I reform definitely act want sucked. to. We should His reform totally act bring would Michael not Chung have significantly improved this. There are aspects of the Reform Act that absolutely would improve this, including uh, formalizing certain rules by which people could be expelled by caucus. That actually would affect a lot of this. Um, But that being said, I mean, I I think there's really only two paths to reform here. One of them is that somehow we've got to break up the power of these parties or decentralize the power of these parties, because otherwise this problem is only going to really get worse. And secondly, I would think electoral reform is one of the paths of reform. I mean, if you move to a more proportional representation system, then it becomes far more normal for coalitions between smaller parties to form. And that makes it harder for the power to be centralized in a prime minister's office. I'm, you know, kind of torn on electoral reform. But as I said, if we start to see as a reaction to the centralization, more independence in parliament and- Which would be a great, you know, answer, but they need to have more power. That's not a bad option. The problem is for that, we need actually voters to become much, much more aware of how the system actually is supposed to work, A, and- be much more comfortable with voting against party lines and voting for their actual local MPs and start treating those MPs as the representatives that they're supposed to be. Right now, I mean, right now, I think that people just treat MPs, I I mean, the actual individual MP accounts for something between like five and 10% of their overall vote. I mean, people vote party lines, that's it. And that is, I think, the fundamental corruption of our system that's allowed all of this to happen. Yeah. In my personal life, I vote for the candidate I like the most. I mean, partly because I don't want to get into a conflict where I'm voting based on a party that I have to go cover. But I, I vote for an MP whose CV I like, whose personality I like, whose plan I like. But the reality is I'm getting more and more disenchanted with that because I know full well that once they get into the House, they are nothing more than a pawn for their party. I mean, they might get up and say intelligent things. They might ask great questions in committee. But in terms of their voting record, this has been studied and, and it's been uh, pretty stagnant over the past 10 years or so. The House tends to vote vote along party lines upwards of 75% of the time. Caucus by caucus, it's it, you know, it actually, the, the divide is much worse. The liberals tend to vote around 75% of the time uh, in unison. The NDP has voted between 95 and 100% of the time in unison over the last couple of years, which is terrifying. You know, the majority of MPs in the House have never voted against party lines, even when the vote is not whipped, which means that, you know, the level of cult-like devotion to your gang has gotten to the point where there's no independent thought behind legislation. I don't I do not believe uh, that, you know, all of the, you know, 177 liberals in the House all firmly believe that every single piece of legislation introduced by the government is good. I don't believe that. It's terrifying to me. 
Well, and I say that the third option for reform is that one of the parties actually agrees with us, sees this as a fundamental problem and decides to reform from within. Well, every single party promises that. The Liberal Party promised that in 2015. They fucking lied. The Conservative Party promised that in 2006. They fucking lied. I mean, I no longer believe parties when they say they want to give individual MPs the vote. And I no longer believe parties when they say they want to reform the House of Commons because they never fucking do. So basically, democracy is a problem. Well, that's it for Oppo. We will be back again in two weeks. Commons just started their look at the history of oil in Canada, including North America's first oil well, which was actually just outside of Toronto. So take that, you smarmy Eastern elites. Okay. Get in touch with us at oppo at canadalandshow.com or find us on Twitter and Facebook at OppoCast to let us know what you think. This episode of Oppo is produced by David Crosby for Canada Land Media. God bless David Crosby for putting up with all of our crap. Our managing editor is Kevin Sexton. Theme music by Nathan Burley. I have the last word this week, and that word is Rasputin. Apparently, who Jerry Butts most <laughs> resembles, according to one op-ed in the Globe and Mail. And instead of that shitty song from the 70s, I'm going to leave you with this song instead. She's crazy like a fool. What about daddy?